if we could have our uh, young people go downstairs. Miss Brooke has got an awesome day planned for you. Get the desk cleaned up. Well, we've got uh, staying in the step of the Holy Spirit. Man, this is part three now. I can't stop. So uh, we're, we're in part three. Normally we get stopped at part two, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? No. But uh, really quick before I get started, Mike, uh, I wanted to, how, how was, you got to tell us of all your situations with Mr. Landon. You have to, not a lot of people don't know everything, so. Yeah.
said, don't mess with me, I raised Marie. That's <laughs> today and, and God as we dive into this um, just staying in step with you God we just pray Father that you we would learn to listen to you better and, and hear from you God and know what you are saying and learn what you are doing and identifying God where you're working Lord we just uh, kind of put aside all of our little agendas and pet peeves and all of our little things and differences to say simply that we want to hear from you today Holy Spirit we just love you and we thank you for filling this place with your presence and uh, giving us something new and something different and encouraging us in a way that we've never been encouraged before. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. It's been a crazy few weeks. Last week, gosh, wasn't that neat with the youth uh, last weekend? And uh, just with all ton of youth up here, it was amazing. And uh, seeing what God was doing there. Um, in men's group this last week, Ray Vanderland said something that kind of knocked me over, and if we didn't watch any more of it, but he left it with that statement. You know how you have those little statements, and you're like, well, that's all I needed. So, By the way, you can't leave here if that happens here. You have to stay through the whole sermon. Just kidding. <laughs> so Ray Vanderland said this. You know, He does everything on site there in Israel, and uh, 
uh, just understanding the wilderness walk, where we're going. And he said, you know, life is not a sidewalk. And uh, how many of you know life is not a sidewalk? <laughs> when God takes us on a journey, he takes us through, and we walk through things, and he has us walking through paths that we simply say to God, God, there's no way I can get through that path. There's no way I can walk through this. This is tough. This is, this is hard. And just like Mike was talking about pushing those limits and going through those things and those boundaries and everything that happened in our life, there, but there is no sidewalks. There isn't this cute curb and little flowers on the side. You might get some flowers, but you're going to have to move the weeds out of the way to find the flowers. So. But uh, it's an amazing thing. Life is not a sidewalk. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. How many have some inward pain going on right now? Some situations that are tough. Jeremiah was pleading with him, prophesying. God was speaking through Jeremiah here, and the people had wandered away. He said, From the least to the greatest, from their lives are ruled by greed. From prophets to priests, they are all frauds. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace, and they are ashamed of their disgusting actions. Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. Therefore, they will lie among them the slaughter. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. And this is what I want you to understand. This verse right here. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old, godly way and walk in it. Do you catch that? Stop at the crossroads and look around and ask for the old, godly way and walk in it. Travel its paths and you will find rest for your souls. But you will reply, no, that's not the road we want. I posted a watchman over you who said, listen for the sound of the alarm. But you replied, no, we won't pay attention. I think it's interesting, and I think what we have in the condition in the American church is, I don't know if you know this or not, but greed plays a huge role in the American church. Can I get an amen? We are a very materialistic society, and where we define success, and it's a very scary place to be, we define success by simply money. It's that simple. It's, it, we live that way in our culture. We live that way by what we get and what we do. And, and there's nothing, with nice, nothing wrong with nice things, but how many you get some nice things, and you're like, ooh, I got something good here today. But we do stand at a crossroads, and I believe what's happening for many pastors, and it's a blanket statement I understand, there are many great ministries, people are doing great things in America. But what I want to say is the overarching thing is this, is that I believe so often is that many priests and many pastors are handing a bandage to something that is completely a big, huge wound, a gap that's going on in America. And we can't just walk around saying, this is great, it's wonderful, God bless America, can we? We must deal with the wounds going on. When my children, when they come and they've got a gaping wound, I remember when Hunter had completely smashed his big toe. It was one of those things where a band-aid wasn't going to fix that toe. And we raced into the hospital and he got stitched up. But we can't sit there and we can't go by and look at people's pain and our problems and just say, well, that sin's okay, it's okay, God loves you, and, and it's going to be okay. No, we must apply a bandage, a healing bandage to the wound and act more serious about what's going on. We do stand at a crossroads in our lives, dealing with pain and confusion and doubt, the fear that has gripped us so long, the not knowing what is going to happen, even with me with these messages and what's going on with life. I don't need to show a hands, but how many of you go, man, life where I'm at right now, I definitely didn't plan this place. 
didn't plan this. I didn't plan this place where I'm at and everything going on with my life. And we stand at that kind of crossroads to believe and trust that God is going to take us places that we didn't know that he was going to take us. But yet it's very interesting how it unfolds. Henry Newman writes this. So I am praying while not knowing how to pray. I am resting while feeling restless, at peace while tempted, safe while still anxious, surrounded by a cloud of light while still in darkness, and in love while still doubting. Anybody connect with that today? I look at kind of our own, our own doubts and my own situations and my own worries and my own fears, and I say, God, I'm praying, but, but I don't know how to pray. God, I'm trusting, but I don't know how to trust. And I want to give everybody a a free pass. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Is to be completely human right now. Isn't that interesting? You know, we got all this AI stuff and robotic stuff and all these things. But man, can you imagine all the computers and everything? We just dump it in a big pile for a moment. And we actually get back to the human factor. Of how you feel. What you know, having a relationship with the Holy Spirit that invites us to be ourselves. You know, church does a really weird way of putting masks on people. You know, it's kind of like we're, we're one way in the cafe there, and then when we get out with our fellows and stuff, we're a completely different way. I think the word for that is called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrites. So I don't want you to be a one way here and a one way there. Bring all your stuff here. Turn somewhere and say, bring all your stuff here. Now I invite that to all of us because maybe what happens is, see, here's what happens with the game that we play with hypocrisy and all that happens with our life is we actually start to believe the lie that we're portraying. That's the crazy thing. When you've done it long enough and you've played the game long enough, you actually start to play the lie that you've been playing your whole life. And you're not the real you. You've got the prayers memorized. We've got the prayers memorized and all of that. But I want us to get back down to what Henry Nguyen writes. It says, so I'm praying while not knowing how to pray. I'm resting while I'm feeling restless, at peace while tempted, saith why anxious, surrounded by a cloud of light while still in darkness, and love while still doubting. Isn't it crazy how the greats of our faith, they prayed things like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Abraham, one of the greats of faith, laughing at God when he said he was going to have a kid. Boy, what a great of faith, right? Like literally, this isn't like a laugh. This is a mocking laugh. These are our greats of faith. You peel back all the religious stained glass and you realize how beautifully written this Bible is and how beautiful it is in the context of God using people where they're at. Healing the wound of people lightly. Let me open this up real quick. Guys, it's going to get serious now. I've got electronic devices in here. I'm going to read you something. One of my favorite theologians in the world is Eugene Peterson. Anybody ever read any of his stuff? He is... uh, Fantastic, but he wrote a book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. But he reads into the context of what Jeremiah was dealing with, 
And, and I was thinking about the young people we had all up here, circled on here, a ton of them, and what they did. He says this, I first became interested in Deuteronomy, I mean really interested, through a story that took place 500 years after Moses preached the sermon. It's the story of discovery of the Deuteronomy sermon in a pile of rubble in a Jerusalem temple. We don't know how long the scroll, scroll had been there. 300 years is an educated guess. The story is recorded in 2 Kings 22 and 23, and 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. Here's the story. Joash. Anybody remember Joash? He became king when he was 8 years old. He became king at such a young age through an act of violence. His father Amon was murdered by a cabal of conspirators in a bloody palace coup. The assassins were immediately apprehended and killed. Joash was rescued and prominently crowned king, the youngest king ever to sit on Judah's throne. The year was 640 B.C. Josiah's reign would end 31 years later when he was killed by the Egyptian pharaoh in a battle at Megiddo in 609 B.C. Violence launched his kingship and violence ended it. But the 31 years of his reign were simply stunning. In no small part because of the discovery of the Deuteronomy scroll. The boy Josiah inherited a huge moral and political mess. How many know we're in that right now? His grandfather, King Manasseh, may have been the absolutely worst king Judah had ever experienced, filling the country with every imaginable evil and even some imaginable ones during his 55-year reign. Assyria was the dominant world power at the time. It had bullied the world for 300 years and acquired the distinction of making high art out of evil, Cruelty, torture, lasciviousness, black magic, spirit mediums, witches, sorcerers, child sacrifice, you name it. Manasseh was a great admirer of all things Assyrian and imported its evil by the truckload into Judah and Jerusalem. He constructed Assyrians, fired sex and religion shrines all over the country, erected obscene phylacteric pillars to sex goddess Asheroth, filled Solomon's temple with foul images and relics, even built rooms in the temple for use of male prostitutes, a moral cesspool, a spiritual nightmare, creati- creation polluted, salvation repudiated, and holy community in ruins. Ammon, Josiah's father, continued Manasseh's course, but he was assassinated two years later. Such were the conditions that this eight-year-old Josiah faced. Pretty crazy, right? We sit here and we're overwhelmed by everything, but God is raising Josiahs up in America right now. We don't know who rescued Josiah from the assassinations and then guided and advised him through his childhood until he was mature enough to govern in his own right. We are not told that story. All we know is the result, and here it is. At age 16, he was seeking the God of his ancestors. By the time he was 20, he was acting as king on his own and began cleaning up Manasseh's mess, scrubbing the country clean of the sex and religion idolatries, He embraced David as his mentor in all matters royal. He walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. When Josiah was 26 years old, Hilkiah, the high priest, in the course of extensive repairs being carried out in Solomon's temple, the place of worship, found a scroll, the book of law, given through Moses. The book was Deuteronomy. It had long been obscured and rubbled during Manasseh's misrule. And when it was read to Josiah, he immediately embraced it as his text for completing the reform he had launched six years earlier. It was the defining moment in his kingship. He had his text, and without a moment of hesitation, he set about the extensive rebuilding of his country as the community of the people of God. Isn't that just amazing? 
Jeremiah received his call to be prophet. And this is Jeremiah. This is what we're reading right now. Received his call to be prophet four years after Josiah had launched his reform movement. He began preaching repentance using language that has many affinities with the words and phrases in the Deuteronomy scroll. The king and the prophet, it seems, were of one mind, and Deuteronomy provided the text that God used in the lives of both Josiah and Jeremiah to pull the people of God back from the brink of distinct, or extinction. Folks, I want us to understand this. You say, well, what does this have to do now with us? What does it have to do with me? And I think it's very important when we talk about the context, the old ancient ways, okay? We can all look back in history and we can say, well, this time in America was great. I want you to just pull your brain out from that because it wasn't that great. Turn to someone and say, it wasn't that great. But the 50s were great. Really? Shall we go back into our history in the 50s? Come on. Come on. We live so blinded. So I'm not talking about the old ways and the ancient ways of what we thought was a better time and place. We are talking about the old ways of God going all the way back to Moses and the word of God that he stands forever. We're going back to God and his original plan. Not some version of an American gospel where we put a stamp of approval on something and live the way we want to keep living. Healing the wound of the people lightly. There's an inward progress that starts to happen. Eugene Peterson says you can buy a religion of promises and wise saying and interesting answers to big questions for $15 to $20. The world's full of such stuff, but what most of us want to know is, does it happen and can it happen here and is it living? We must ask the stubbornly practical questions when it comes to God and church. I have no patience with the truth that cannot be lived, and I don't want you to have any patience with it either. Folks, I want you to know today as we start taking that inward work and we start going to the crossroads in our life, we have to ask ourselves the question, can the word of God live in and through my life? Can it be lived? And if it can't be lived, then, then, then give me something else. It must be something where we, in him we live, and in him we move, and in him we have our being. 1 John 5, verses 3 through 5. Let's turn there real quick and read that. If you want to get revival in your heart, anybody want revival? Don't get too excited here. Holy cow. Does anybody want a revival in here? 1 John 5, verses 3 through 5. Here's what it's going to take. We want that inward progress. Loving God means keeping his commands. And his commandments are not what? We think this thing is hard. You make it hard because your flesh is in the way. I make it hard because I'm stubborn about things and I want to do things my way. The commandments of God are not burdensome. So what we've done, though, is what we saw what the Pharisees did with the laws, and they brought in their own traditions, and they even got to the point where they would say, okay, well, you've got to keep the Sabbath holy, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, and these are the rules that you've got to follow in order to keep the Sabbath day holy, which were not in the intent of the law. So we get out of balance with all of that, and we say, man, obeying God is hard. No, when we love God, we want to obey his commands and go after the things of God. 
Folks, I want inward progress and I want to love God more and, and kind of hate sin a whole lot more. Can I get an amen there? Isaiah 30, 21, it says this even, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what you have a guarantee with the Holy Spirit? Your own ears will hear him, and right behind him you'll hear a voice say, go this way or go that way. When it comes to the power of Christ for you and I, do you know you're going to have that voice right behind you telling you, man, if you start getting a little off track, the Holy Spirit would prick you. How many have been pricked before by the Holy Spirit? How many have had something where you go, man, this isn't right. I don't feel good about this situation. Man, that's a bump. You've got a nudge. I love the nudge of God. He loves me enough to say, don't go here. Don't go there. Go in this path that I have for you. You're at a crossroad. You'll hear his voice. It's a promise that you and I have of that inward progress. One thing that we forget about Christ, by the way, in all of our business of the day, you know, we're so busy with our business and getting things done and accomplishing things and spreadsheets and doing all these metrics. Do you know what we lose? And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we have with Christ. Do you know the one greatest thing that you have with Christ is? Friendship. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you can leave here today, you say, man, what do I have with Christ today? What do I have? All the benefits, this and that. Oh yeah, you've got heaven, you've got all those things, but I'm talking about right here and right now. You have friendship with the Father. You have friendship. John 15, turn there real quick. I want to have a friend, don't you? Some of us, we might have had a lot of friends, and some of you have Facebook friends. I want a real friend. And let me tell you something, God will give you more than thumbs up and likes on your page. You'll get some real dopamine going if you understand this. John 15, 13 through 15, on the concept of friendship. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. And by the way, for all of us cocky Christians out there, he says this. You didn't choose me. I chose you. So for those of us, oh, I chose Christ. He didn't, you didn't choose Christ. He chose you. He got you out of your mess. You didn't get yourself out of your junk. You didn't get yourself out of your problem. You didn't tie your bootstraps up. God saved your butt. And ain't that a good thing? I, I need a God who can save me from myself. And not only did he save Steve Lapp from all of my mess, do you know what he did? He called me and he appointed me. Not only does he call Steve Lapp, and not only does he appoint me, but he confides in me. See, friends talk. And I know we do that less and less. In fact, in the culture we live in now, communication, words don't mean as much. There isn't value because everything has been condensed down into a C number two you later. 
emoji, smiley face. Our emotions even have been condensed down to the break points in our text. We don't know how to communicate anymore with people. You go to the cafes, do you think people are talking there? No, they're not talking there. They're heads in the computer or on a phone. We don't know how to communicate, so we don't even know friendship anymore. Can you imagine us calling someone out of the blue and actually just calling them out of the blue just to say, well, let's go hang out. You know, it's kind of weird because you feel like you have to have something you have to talk about. My friend Matt called me and he's like, Steve, let's go get some coffee. And let me tell you what's really cool about it is there's no agenda in that meeting. None. We start talking and it leads to it leads to this, it leads to that, it leads to the other. It does all sorts of things. But what's cool about it is at the end of it, boy, our relationship has gotten deeper, hasn't it? Do you know with God, I want to challenge you if you want to have some enjoyment. Just don't have an agenda with it. Well, wait a second, I've got to get stuff done. Well, remember, God never sleeps and he never slumbers. So the stuff that you're needing to work on, he is already working on it. So it's not like God has to be reminded. Here's your reminder note, God. Can you just not forget that? <laughs> oh, we think we need to do that with God. But, but I challenge you to start looking at the role of the Holy Spirit as your counselor and as your friend. That it's just that, that there doesn't have to be an agenda. That there doesn't have to even be a time frame. We're like, man, I only got a few minutes in the pray. Well, well, did you only get a few minutes? How many had only a few minutes to talk to your wife yesterday? How many had a few minutes to talk to your husband? How many had a few? It's okay. We're, we have this guilt-ridden complex. Like, well, I didn't pray hard enough and I didn't do enough. How about be a friend to God? Wouldn't that be brilliant? That we wouldn't treat God like business? See, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't business that caused him to die. It was the love of the people that he had, that he shed his blood on Calvary because he saw faces, he saw names, he saw families, he saw people, he saw events, and he said, they need me. Friendship. Eugene Peterson writes, being a friend is the opposite of being an enemy. That simple contrast stands out above all else in Abraham. Abraham was on such terms with his God that he responded without suspicion and without fear. This is what religion does. Read this. Abraham somehow knew that God was on his side. That God was for him and with him a friend. The dominant feeling in the country and culture in which Abraham grew up was that the gods were distinctly unfriendly. How many in the past have felt like God was just unfriendly, an unfriendly person. I mean, honestly, you thought that, you know, he was just got this lightning bolt, and the minute you did something wrong, it's over. Folks, God is not that God. An elaborate priestly caste was at work night and day to protect the people from the malicious caprice of the gods, temper tantrums from the sky, unpredictable outbursts of anger, or maybe just cold indifference. Elaborate rituals were engaged in. Taboos were carefully observed. Sacrifices administered. It was the biggest business in the Middle East for the gods were mysterious and dark forces that couldn't be counted on. Not much has changed in 4,000 years. 
For us, the gods have been secularized. For us, it's anxiety, it's guilt, it's indifference. We're as weary as all the Chaldeans that Abraham grew up with, living in an atmosphere of malign forces that cannot be anticipated or controlled. It could be cancer, it could be guns. And the modern West, as well as the ancient East, there's an undercurrent of fear, much of it fueled by an erotic or manipulative religion that results in an apprehension of God as the enemy. Folks, God is a God of love. He is a God of order. If you want to get a description, by the way, that's your Old Testament, God is love. He goes on to say this, and I want to enunciate this for your own life. There are many things to be afraid of in this world, and many people who endanger our security, but God is not one of them. If you're going to teach your children anything, God can be counted on. If you're going to teach them to fear anything, you tell them, listen, God is a God of love. He longs to hear from you. He says, bring the children on to me. Bring the children on to me. I love you and I would do anything for you. God loves you. He is not some God out there waiting to strike you down. Oh, please get that today. Because some of our prayers and some of our lifestyle and the way we do things, we go to the kingdom of God we go. Oh, God, it's so horrible. Man, would you strip the junk off? He wants to talk to you today. I don't want my children moping around the house. I want my children to be excited. We can talk. Let's go do something. Let's, let's, let's have a relationship. Let's have fellowship. God is a friend first and foremost to you. By the way, friendship, and this is what's hard for us in our get-it-done-busy society. What did I accomplish today? What did I do? What promise did God fulfill today? Man, just take a deep breath and say, God, thank you for being my friend. Yeah. Friendship is totally about relationship. It's not about function. Man, if you want function, go get a book. Go read the three points on it, and you get the function done. You, you can have that kind of religion, and you can get on the treadmill of life, but walking with the Holy Spirit is this relationship that you get with Him, that you talk with Him. Folks, I am telling you, it's very real, and it's very simple, and you may not get thunders, and there might not be doves fly through the middle of your car, but you will know God, and you will sense Him. I was going down the middle of East State and Alpine. Not a very cool place. It's just East State and Alpine, full of cars. I look to my left and I see these cars and or see these trees with bright oranges and bright reds. It's pretty neat out there. I said, Lord, you do a really good job. That's what I said. I said, you are really good at making these tree colors. You forget to see it because your head is in the junk and the technology of the world and you're in your busyness and you forget that God longs for friendship with you. C.S. Lewis wrote, when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than any other time. When they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. When you are totally God's and you can totally trust him as your friend, you will be more yourself than ever before in your life. You will get all, all the pretense, you will get all of the junk off, you will get all the stuff and you'll realize, man, I have got this beautiful relationship, I have friendship with God, I have that above anything else. Folks, I encourage you to be yourself with God. Be your honest self with God. Eugene Peterson even wrote this about his congregation. 
And I think this is hard for all of us, even with our interpersonal relationship. He said, I was learning to embrace the congregation just as they were, not how I wanted them to be. You know, you think about friendship with people and others. Isn't it time we just embrace people for who they are, as opposed to who you want them to be? You know, this is the problem in marriage many times. No, no, nothing against the women, but many times the women think they're going to fix this guy, and they get into marriage to say, well, once I get married, I'll fix him, and he'll learn to do this, and he'll learn to do that. Let me tell you a big ass. You ain't fixing that guy. No, no, you don't fix men. You don't fix men, and vice versa. Men, you don't fix women. You're marrying that person for who they are. Didn't get too many amens there. Some of you have been trying to fix. Stop fixing. You got what you got. Embrace it. You'll train that man like a dog or something or your kid. That's your spouse. You embrace the person. When people come into church and they're having situations, don't you get into fixed mode and tell them how they're going to do this and fix that? You stay in your own business. You embrace that person and love them for their mistakes and love them through their fears and love them through the misunderstandings. And you just love them. You embrace them. We will never enjoy fellowship and people as long as we're always in a tweaking mode. Now, folks, listen. I understand we grow and there's a metamorphosis we go through. But listen, that's on God's terms with that person. We don't all grow at the same rates. We go through changes and challenges. Man, I can't believe he's been struggling with that forever. What? You're not struggling with nothing right now? Friendship with God is also embracing God for who he is. Not who we want God to be in that moment. Did you catch that? See, many times we lose the effect of love and devotion to God because we're not embracing God because God is this and we want Him to be that. Well, God, you didn't do this in this moment. He's God. Embrace God. See, you can't wrap Him up and you can't package Him. You can't put Him into a little business meeting for you. You say, well, I need this. Well, he might think you need something else. Here's what God does for you as a friend. These are some of the traits of the friendship. A friend fights for you. I love that about a friend. You know, if you're in a playground somewhere and some dude comes up to you, you want a good friend to have your back, don't you? It's really nice in the playground when your friend doesn't go, I'll leave you alone like what happened in the Christmas story a long time ago. They left a little guy there all by himself to get beat up by the bully. But it was really cool in that moment when, what's his name? Who's the glasses guy? Ralphie decided to beat the bully up. Isn't that a good thing? Like, you keep swinging. Don't stop, Ralphie. (laughs) Friends, fight for you. I want friends who will stick up for me. I've said the story a million times. My sister stuck up for me. She was my friend in the moment. I was bullied at Spring Creek Elementary School, and this dude just fronted me. Got in front of me, got in my business. Started pushing on me, and I'm like, 
I'm this little shrimp kid in fourth grade. My sister in sixth grade set up two shit. That's my brother. You get away from him. Never get in a fight with a girl. She'll take you down. My sister will mess you up. I don't want friends to critique me. I want friends to fight for me. Exodus 14, 14. Get this promise about friendship with God. The Lord shall fight for you. And I want to tell you today with your battles and your friendship, the battles you're facing, you think you're alone. You're not alone. And you've believed the lie from the enemy for far too long. And you realize that he is a friend that sticks close to their brother. And he will fight your battles for you. In and through you. He's the one that will give you strength to face the battles and to fight them. And to say things that might be difficult to say. And to do things that might be difficult to do. Sometimes it's just hard to stand up, isn't it? And be accounted for. Sometimes it's just really hard to just say, okay, God, I'm... I'm believing you. I'm going to stand on this friendship, God. I thank you, God, that you are fighting for me. Folks, friends, sacrifice for each other. John 15, let's turn there real quick. 15, 13, if you're not still there, you're probably still there. There is no greater love, I've read it before, than to lay down one's life for another. By the way, as God is our friend, it's not like a God approves of everything. Wounds from a friend are very important. And how many have had a good friend that have told you something and you needed some truth at a time and you go, oh, that hurt, but it, it was really important at that season of your life. It's really important to have friends that don't just pat you on the back, but actually stay and say, hey, listen, man, this isn't right. Let's, let's keep going. I love you, but man, you've got to change this. This isn't right. A friend knows what to say. Eugene Peterson writes, I decided to try quitting or to quit trying to prove to God to others and instead started listening to God speak to me. Not make pronouncements on God, but listening, listening, listening. Instead of searching scriptures for truths I can use to bully or impress my friends, I would take my place alongside them in this God creation and enter into what God was creating in me and around me. Many of us just use the Bible and Bible study and all that just to further solidify our, our cockiness and our arrogance as opposed to saying, God, like that song today, melt me and mold me and shape me, God. I, I'm coming alongside of this. I don't need another bullet point to further prove what God, I, oh my gosh, Lord, help me to be slow to speak. Do you know, isn't it so great to have a listening friend? Have you ever had jabber-jabbers in your life? Man, a listening friend is really good. You know, and sometimes when we talk to God, He might not be necessarily saying anything back to you, but He's there along there, and He's listening. Well, I didn't hear anything from God. Yeah, but He was listening. And maybe He speaks... Maybe he's quiet. Haven't you had those times in your own relationship where you didn't have a lot you were talking about, but you were just there? And this is the hard part for us in our culture, which has defined busyness as success. You know, a century ago, do you know leisure was defined as success? It really was. 
It was the amount of time that you could take to rest. That actually defined position in, in the world. If you were a leisurely person, uh, you were a person of success. Now it's actually switched. We have a paradigm now where the, the mode of the day is we are busy. We have working vacations. We're, we're busy. We're under constant stress. Is anybody busy in this place today? We're busy. And I want to tell you today in that friendship that you have with God, you're going to have to make some time. Turn to someone and we're going to say, not so fast. We need to slow down. And here's where it's at. This is one of those Ten Commandments. I hate to go there, folks. I'm one of those guys. But it's the miracle of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it So it's something that all of us deal with. You say, in America, how do I do that? What do I do? I've got this and I've got that. Let me just back it up a little bit and how we, me and Ann, chose to strategize our life. Because everybody is busy because they've got bills to pay. How many got bills to pay in here today? We have bills to pay. What, what me and Ann did in our own personal life, and I can't take you to a verse of Scripture. You're going to have to be led by the Spirit. But we decided that when we started having kids, we'd pull the reins back and Ann would stop work to be with the kids. Now what that meant was we were going to have to live on one income. Can I get a wow there? So we have the one income and we just have to get by and do it. But how many of you know that God is faithful and He takes care of you? I say that to say that we draw back on some of the busyness, come up with a plan of attack, and we come up with a strategy to say, listen, we've got to find rest here. It was funny with the Sabbath because me and Ann were coming back from vacation and we were driving home and I forgot what town we were in, but we pulled into on a Sunday, I pulled into, we didn't have Chick-fil-A yet in Rockford, but I pulled into Chick-fil-A and I'm like, oh Ann, I heard all about Chick-fil-A. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. So we drive up there, I go into the parking lot and I'm like, there's no one here. I can't get a sandwich. What fast food restaurant closes on Sunday? <laughs> like, oh, they keep the Sabbath day holy. Me and my mom were talking, remember back in the day when life was just a little slower? Eugene Peterson wrote, this is the day to take into account all that God's done for you. This is what the Sabbath day is all about. Take nothing for granted and do it every week. One day a week, stop what you are doing. Be reverent and worshipful and grateful for the Genesis world we are placed in. Remember in gratitude and worshipful, worshipful adoration, hallow this day and keep it holy. Folks, I want to challenge you right now to come up with a plan on how you're going to hallow that day. How you're going to... God hallowed it. On the seventh day, God rested. And by the way, it's not a rest of, man, that was a tough... Woo. Oh, second wind. That was tough getting those clouds in the sky. That was God was not tired. That's not what this rest is about, folks. This rest is a holy, reverent moment. He said, this is good, what I've done. God hallowed it. Where have you heard that verb before? In the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, the first petition in prayer is, Hallowed be thy 
name. Or let your name be recognized as holy. In English, we don't have a verb for holy. Hallowed is not part of our everyday speech. So it's much more like, let your name be reverenced. So the name of God, isn't it crazy when you hear someone go, oh man, GD, God, this is God. Isn't that horrible? We don't hallow God's name anymore. And I challenge you, if you're a Christian in this place, start right there with your mouth and say, God, sorry for not making your name, making your name a curse word as opposed to making it a holy word. I challenge you to confront people around you and say, man, they're like, everyone says, you know, the Jesus Christ or whatever. I say, where's he at? That's what I say. Just make a joke out of it. Make them feel stupid. The seventh day is set apart for being before God, being quiet and being receptive before God as we take in all that God has done. So, well, what's God done for me? We get into this closed, like, oh, stick our hands in our pockets. God's not doing it for me. I've got bills to pay here. I'm a horrible, it's a horrible life. Man, look at the sun, the moon, the stars, your home. Do I need to go through it again like we did yesterday, last week? When I first got into window cleaning, my boss, Dale, at the time, we were driving back from jobs. He was training me. And he said, Steve, I just want to tell you something. As you get into this business, you're going to be tempted to get as much work as you can. Because there's houses I could do, and there was good money to be made in those houses. Good opportunities. How many say, man, I got this side job here, do this there. Man, you get a good hustle going. Nothing wrong with that. He said, Steve, but you have to make, a, like a, just a, draw a red line in the sand that you never work on a Sunday. So he told me. Now granted, if you have to work on a Sunday, you're an EMT person, all this kind of stuff. Those things happen. Farmers, by the way, farmers are working really big right now. Went by a lot of farmer Joes that are milking cows on Sunday morning. Those ha- those farmers aren't. No. <laughs> That's <was> pretty funny. <laughs> but he, he told me, Steve, just keep that day set apart. Because there will always be somebody who want to have you do this or do that or get busy here or do that. And there will always be opportunities. But leave that day set aside for God. That hallowed moment. When you get with your family and the people that you're around and realize that your family is more important than money, folks. I'm telling you right now. Because the minute you pay that bill down, you're going to have 14 more that are coming right behind you. Set it aside. We work ourselves into the ground. Keep it holy. It's so important. And this is that part with friendship with God. James 4.8 says this. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That resting part that we start to have in our own lives. If anything, I pray that it kind of quickens us. It kind of wakens us up to say, Man, God, I have been way, way too busy. Sandra, if you want to come up here and start playing... I wanted you, in this busy culture, to avoid the temptation to push and to push for more. You say, well, how am I going to be able to do it? I don't know. But you're going to have to find a way. We instilled with our kids, when they're getting jobs and everything else, we're like, guys, Sunday is God's day. That's it. Go find a job, go talk to those people and let them know 
Because if you don't draw a line in the sand, they will draw a line in the sand for you. You don't get pushed around by people. You have to set your standards because people will encumber your space. Folks, I don't know how you deal with your Sabbath or whatever, what you do. I challenge you to turn electronic devices off. I challenge you to put things away. I challenge you to keep work at work. I love Mike's done this before. I love what he does. Mike will actually leave his laptop at home. He doesn't want to bring it home. He won't leave email on his phone. One time I'm like, hey, can I shoot you an email? He's like, well, I don't get it on my phone. Maybe you still do that. You're like, Steven, that's changed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... But it was so cool because you have to be intentional in the Sabbath rest thing. I love what Elizabeth Ivitz Dickerson says. And our rush to make more money and to have the American dream as has been defined to us, we ended up crowding out our opportunity to have more time. I was reading by John Hopkins Institute about time the other day. And it was funny, they did multiple, multiple studies. And for all you people who say you don't have any time, you need to start uh, recording your time. We have more time now than we've ever had. People think, well, man, I'm more busier than what they were in previous generations. The reality is, and this is just the truth, you're not. We still to this day, and the, the really ugly elephant in the room for our American lazy culture is this, is that we still spend three and a half hours an evening in front of the television. That's the reality. And if it's not television, it's another couple hours in front of the phone. We have so much downtime, it's absolutely ridiculous. What ends up happening with our time and how we value time is this, is that we get into situations, and they did a study with all these people, and they said, Friday, what are you going to do? How many love Friday when it comes to you? Friday's here. Woo-hoo! And then Monday comes, and you're like, oh, man, I couldn't get this done, and I couldn't get that done. And most of the people that they interviewed, they said, do some quality things. Go hiking, read a book, do some things, leisurely things. And the vast majority of those people went either on a Netflix binge or did something in front of the television. They didn't do anything worth of any value. I'm not here to whip anyone with a stick. Please understand. What I am telling you today is you're going to have to find rest. So well, I'll find it in the next life. Well, you can take your you can take your anxiety pills, you can take your depression pills. It's just the truth. We are not finding time to rest. And if you're not going to take, which is one of those big commandments, oh the commandments are no law, I'm a New Testament. Oh man, just read your Bible. And just rest. Because you'll find friendship with God. But you're going to have to do it His way. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment. This message today was different than last week. when they're all different. but It's more instructional. But if there is one thing that I can identify today that really stood out to me, I want us to know today is that the greatest benefit that you have today as a believer in Jesus Christ he is your best friend. And today, if you feel that you have been pulled away from that mode and you've got more religious, rigid, and you've lost the warmth of that friendship, the reality that he walks with you and he talks with you.
If you've lost that today, you've lost your first love. He came to earth, he died, was rose again on the third day, and that power, that resurrection, that life that we have, he says, I don't call you slaves, for the master doesn't confide in his slaves. I call you friends. Today, Jesus Christ calls you his friend. And if you don't know that friendship, if you don't know that friendship right now today, first and foremost, you don't have that friendship with Christ, you want Jesus Christ as your friend. Jesus said, I will come and I will dine with you as you give your heart to him. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, knowing him as your friend, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you please raise your hand? I want to pray with you today. Thank you. Why don't we pray this together, all of us? Dear Jesus, I thank you today that you call me your friend. I give you my heart. I give you everything. I give you my pain. I give you my sin. I give you all my problems. And I ask you, God, to take over my life. To lead and to guide me. In Jesus' name. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed today, if you say, you know what, I've lost that first love and that the idea that Christ is my friend. You're a believer, but there's just not that love there. And Christ wants to restore that relationship so that you can have communion with him once again and you can rip all the agendas up that you have for God today. You can enjoy the relationship. Today, you long for that relationship to be reestablished so that you can know Jesus, not as a business manager, not as a taskmaster, but as your friend once again. That he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother to you. That's you today. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Anyone else? Let's pray this. Dear Jesus, restore to me the joy salvation. Thank you for standing at the door of my heart and knocking. I let you in. Thank you for calling me your friend. Thank you for confiding in me. I love you. Help me to love you more and to know you as my friend. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, folks.